Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. All right, everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and I am so glad you are with us. Uh, I am looking forward to this episode. I've been looking forward to this uh, particular episode, this particular conversation for a long, long time. I'm going to get a chance to introduce to you a good friend of mine, friend friend of many years, uh, Mr. Vernsteiner. Um, but before I do, uh, my I'm joined by my my regular co-host, Father Jeff Lorig. Father, how you doing? You sounded disappointed as you said. I know. Name. I didn't mean to sound. <laughs> I was trying to like deepen my voice because of the significance of who you are. The gravity yeah, of it I'm all. I'm sorry. That sounded like I wasn't excited. <laughs> I'm very excited you're here. I'm <laughs> very, ex- very excited to be with, with uh, you and, and Vern as well. Uh, um, this is going to be special, I think. Yeah, this is really. So today we're talking about really equipping the saints for ministry. We're going to get a chance to dive in to uh, a section of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians and just talk a little bit about his vision for ministry. I am so excited that joining, uh, kind of leading our conversation t- today, I guess, uh, is a very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Vern Steiner. Uh, Vern uh, and I have been friends for many, many years back, gosh, I don't know, when, when before, I, before I moved uh, to the Archdiocese of Omaha, before I came to Omaha, uh, Vern and I met in Lincoln when I was still doing campus ministry. Uh, Vern is uh, currently the director of the Emmaus Institute, uh, Biblical Studies Institute uh, here in Nebraska, does beautiful, amazing work. And uh, Vern, thanks for being with us today. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much, Jim. What Jim's not telling you is that he was instrumental as uh, one of God's servants in uh, seeing my family and I eventually come into the Catholic Church. So uh, I've, I've been in the Catholic Church just over five, almost six years. And our friendship goes back to about 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, through those uh, 10, 15 years or so that brought us into the church, uh, Jim's to be credited for his part. So thank you, my friend. You were welcome. It, it, yeah, a lot of fun, uh, joy to... We had this, so I, I think we should tell this just for, for context. So, you know, Vern, you've been a seminary professor, you've been a pastor, you've been um, kind of, you've run, you know, several, or at least two now, uh, biblical institutes uh, here in Nebraska. Prior to becoming Catholic, we met, because I think you'd done a workshop for a number of campus ministers at the University of Nebraska. That's where we, we first met. And I don't remember how we got reacquainted, um, but it was just, marvelous biblical studies. It was so fun and, and wonderful. Uh, and I, I think as we reconnected in our, our friendship at some point, well, I started to come to the seminars uh, for, for the uh, biblical institute that you were, you were running. And I, I come to the, the, the seminars and I just loved it. And I loved talking about the scriptures, but there'd always be this, you know, point in the conversation as I would make friends with the uh, the people around me about five minutes in, they'd kind of look, they noticed something on my shirt. They're like, oh, focus, what's that? And, and then I would spell out the acronym. Well, it's the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And sometimes people's eyes would get wide. They're like, oh, you're Catholic. Oh, that's great. Uh, there's a Catholic guy at work. He's very nice. I love Catholics. It was just, just, like, it was just like a really funny uh, experience for me where it was just for a long time, it was fun being the only Catholic at these, at these biblical seminars. 
It's just that it didn't stay that way because I started to tell friends and colleagues that I had found. And pretty soon there was this little cadre of Catholics that were uh, following the work and a number of people that I think were influenced by your teaching that were becoming Catholic. And the Lord had you on a slightly different timeline, but it was just, yeah, fun to be a part of that. I don't even know what you're, yeah, just, just an experience joining, joining in a group of people who loved the word of God, who were being really drawn together in unity because of the word of God. Mm-hmm. It was, it was beautiful This yeah, just to see the way particular traditions and uh, obviously even eventually denominations were being transcended because of that love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many wonderful memories. I think, Jim, you were one of the first Catholics, and this is an unfortunate admission, but one of the first Catholics in, in my acquaintance who, who was really excited about scripture and uh, learning and growing and studying. And and now I've found many, but uh, at the time, I think you were about the first. And uh, so, yeah, wonderful years. And I'm so grateful for our friendship. I, so Providence set us, set us down in the evangelical Protestant world. And uh, that's where I grew up and I went to school and uh, grew in the early years in my faith and went off to do a lot of schooling. And then, as Jim mentioned, eventually taught seminary in Chicago and in British Columbia and then started an institute here in, in Lincoln and biblical studies. And that's during those years that Jim and I met. In 2011, our son... And his wife came into the church by way of a long journey, about a 10-year journey, and uh, took dad and mom four more years. We also have a daughter, Carrie, who lives with her family in Kansas City, and they were received into the church the same Easter vigil my wife and I were in 2015. And uh, so that's a bit of our background. we were 65 years old when we came into the Catholic Church, and so uh, we feel like we're babies. So many graces, so many blessings, and uh, we're, we're just so humbled to be a part of, of the work here in the Diocese of Lincoln and beyond, and just so grateful for this opportunity. So thank you so much for inviting me to be a part. Well, Vern, for those who want to hear a little bit more about the story, both you and Chad have been on the Coming Home Network, right, with Marcus Grodi? That's correct. Yeah, September, oh, it's about September 7 or September 9, 2019. I believe it's uh, on the Journey Home Network. Yeah. It's probably YouTube searchable. And uh, we did an episode. We'll try and link that up for the show notes because sure. that is a marvelous story in and of itself. So we'll see if we, we see if we can link that in for, for folks who want to hear more of the more of the story. Mm-hmm. Today we're going to get to talk a little bit about. Uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, um, particularly a section where he, he gives this beautiful vision for ministry. Uh, Vern, set us up for the conversation here. And by the way, if anybody is listening, if you're driving, please don't try and pull out your Bible and follow along. <laughs> but if you are, if you're cooking or just hanging out or uh, whatever, like you might want to grab a Bible because we're going to we're going to do a little Bible study conversation here today. So feel free to grab that, uh, flip to the book of Ephesians. If you're, if you're like not sure, you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, then you get, you know, Acts of the Apostles, Romans, Corinthians, and then uh, Gentiles eat pork chops. A fun little acronym to remember. Um, Ephesians is the eat. So Galatians, Ephesians, that's what you're looking for today. So, Vern, what do we what do we need to know about Ephesians? Or just kind of set us up here. Give us some context. 
Sure. Ephesians differs from most of St. Paul's other letters in that it's so manifestly impersonal in tone, uh, by which I mean that there's no personal greeting, there's no occasion to which he's responding, or at least specifically so. Mm. Uh, there are no controversial issues that surface, as they often do in some of uh, Paul's other letters. In fact, there's even some uncertainty over whether or not the letter was written specifically to the Ephesians, mm. as opposed, say, to, uh, you know, kind of a circuit letter to make its way around many, many churches. So uh, this could get us into a more technical discussion, perhaps, than is necessary here. But I'd like to propose that this is significant in, in appreciating Ephesians in that the uh, the letter is meant for a universal readership. We we don't have to feel guilty that we're snooping in someone else's mail when we read it. You <laughs> know, when Paul is addressing uh, Philemon or or Timothy or Titus, you know, we we kind of feel like we're snooping in their mail. This letter isn't addressed to a specific person or a specific congregation, mm. and for me anyway, that suggests that it's meant to have a grander sweeping interest. It's non-occasional. It's not occasion specific. It's, it's meant to help us as Christians understand God's grand vision for the church wherever it is and, and whenever it exists. And uh, I've attempted to summarize this uh, some years ago in an article, and I expressed it in terms of authentic Christianity and the glory of God's church. I think that's what Ephesians is all about. What it really means to be Christian and what God's glorious purposes are in the church. So uh, Ephesians, uh, it's one of my favorites uh, because of this grand vision. And uh, what's more, it's one of these letters that divides right down the middle uh, chapters one through three and chapters four through six. The first three chapters focus, as I was emphasizing, on this glorious vision for God's church. And, and, and basically what I mean by that is that um, God has called the church into existence to be his agency of bringing the whole world to peaceful order under the headship of Christ. And uh, that part of the letter concludes with these famous uh, verses of doxology right at the end of chapter three. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I like to think of these first three chapters as kind of a, a, the imagery of a trophy case. God has called the church into existence to be his exhibit, displaying who he is, who this great God is, uh, whom we know and worship um, and, and through his son, Jesus. And uh, the church is called to be this trophy case, this, this glorious uh, agency to bring the world into the knowledge of, of the salvation that is in Christ. And so then that leads to the second half of the letter, where we want to focus the first few verses of the second half of the letter. 
where he takes this calling of the church and then fleshes it out. So what's this mean in terms of conduct? You know, if, mm-hmm. if we're going to be a trophy case um, displaying God's glorious presence to the world and filling up the universe with, with our Lord, what are the implications of that in terms of the, the life of the church? That's the first mm-hmm. part of chapter four. And then in terms of our personal lives, that's the second part. And then in terms of our family life, and and then in terms of our social, cultural, economic life as well. And so this is really significant because everything in the second half has a context. That is to say that the church is to live a certain way. Uh, We as individual Christians are to live a certain way. We as Christian families are to live a certain way. We're to conduct ourselves out in the world in a certain way, all because this is how we become the people who are the trophies inside the trophy case, showing forth the grace and glory of God. You know, if that cat catches us or, or captures our hearts, it turns church life, personal Christian living, family life, uh, our life out in society, it turns that toward a a glorious purpose. You know, these aren't just rules like do's and don'ts, live this way, don't live this way. It's all about what it means to be the people of God who put God on display in this world. So Mm -hmm. that's Ephesians in in a in a summary, and I think it's just a, a fabulous place for us to be focusing. I, I couldn't help but think as you were talking, gosh, how, t- how timely that is for us right now, because, you know, we're still here, 2021, uh, the, the, the turn of the calendar year didn't, uh, didn't eliminate the challenges uh, that the church has been experiencing for the last few months with the pandemic and all of the fallout that comes with that. Yeah. And that's, I think, in a larger context is where we're asking these questions like, well, what does it mean to be the church today? It is exceptionally rare to find a parish where mass attendance is increasing. And if you do, chances are it's because of the real estate market and not because of evangelization or fruitful witness. And so this question, I think that has been, you know, it goes back to the new evangelization and John Paul II and Benedict and Francis, but this question of like, what does it mean for us to be church? Yeah, I love that you're saying that, okay, but well, <laughs> actually the Lord has something to say about that. And one of the prime places he, he speaks to that question is in Ephesians. And also captured in, in, in the documents of Vatican too, right? That's, that's the question of how are we supposed to be church in the modern world? And yeah, and yeah. what you're saying, Vern, is it's like, Vatican II could probably maybe be summed up in Ephesians. Oh, absolutely, Father. Thank you for that. In fact, I have the documents right here. I was just reviewing the very first one, Lumen Gentium, you know, the dogmatic constitution of the church. And section after section, it's just, it's Ephesians all over the document. And I don't think I have ever read a a better document that that really gets to the heart of what the church is and how the church ought live and how clergy and laity, you know, we all have our part. And that's Ephesians. That's Ephesians 4. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful document. And then, of course, beyond uh, that that first uh, document in in the Vatican II, um, many others in one way or another will connect as well to the themes that emerge from Ephesians. Well, and 
if I can just add one more, because I'm like, I'm super anxious that you were like, okay, we're like talking about the introduction, <laughs> you know, a little, little over excited here, but I, I can't help but think that there is a particular safety in, of course, right. I mean, the dogmatic constitution of the church is a pretty good source to go to, but, you know, as, as we try and sort out our experiences and our pastoral practices and more and more in the church today, there are prophetic voices that if we're honest, discerning, you know, members of the church, pastors, youth ministers, educators, whoever you are, parents, you're just trying, you're trying to sort out those messages of, okay, who are we supposed to be and what does it mean for us? And there's something exceptionally safe to going to the word of God and letting letting the word begin to, to till us and form us and teach us uh, again, what it, yeah, what it means to be church uh, today. Yes, indeed. And as we've been saying, I, I don't know that there's a better place to go than Ephesians to get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, right from the get go, uh, Paul introduces this great doxology to the triune God in the first uh, 14 verses or so. And, each of the paragraphs is sort of punctuated by this refrain to the praise of his glory. And somewhere in the middle of that section, he talks about God's plan, his secret. You know, he's let, he's let the world know what his plan is. And we can awaken every day and we know what God's up to. Uh, I mean, how lucky are we, you know? And, and his plan is to bring everything in all creation into orderliness under the the supremacy of Christ, the headship of Christ. And then he goes on and talks about how, how this glorious plan, of course, is what brings the church into being. And, and that gets us through those first three chapters. And then we get to chapters four and following. It says, okay, kind of in typical Pauline fashion, we move from, in linguistic terms, what we might call from the indicative to the imperative. You know, this is what is now, this is how you're to live. This is, this is these are the implications mm-hmm. of that. You know, we move from doxology to uh, application. And um, I, again, I, I can't think of a better place for us as a church to kind of rediscover who we are, why we're here, what God's up to, and what that means as as a Christian, as a as a clergy, as a layperson. What what does that mean? And I think that's where we're headed in this conversation. I think yeah. uh, our passage has a lot to say about that. Well, let's talk a little bit then. Let's, let's zero in on, on chapter four. And mm. yeah, to talk a little bit about like, what is what does Paul begin to prescribe? And he said it would be the imperative. What does he, what does he begin to uh, prescribe for us? Yeah, this, uh, this whole section, uh, chapters three, or four through six, uh, begins with this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So in light of this great calling of the church to be this glorious trophy case, if I can continue to use that image, what does it mean to walk? And it, I think it's just so noteworthy that the first six verses then of chapter four focus on God-centered unity. Imagine a trophy case 
filled with trophies and they're all squabbling with each other. You know, they just can't get along inside. What sort of an exhibit does that give of the grace and glory and salvation of our Lord? And so uh, these first six verses focus on unity and, and whatever the church is, it certainly is a church amidst all of our variety, we are called to be a oneness, a, a one people of God in Christ. And so uh, he, he will develop this in terms of seven ones. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So lots of ones here and a fondness for seven in the Bible. It's significant that we've got seven bases of oneness. And if we just dwell on those and then uh, remember that this is in the context of humility and being patient and forbearing with one another, because after all, if God's plan is to bring all of creation into orderliness under Christ as, as supreme, then the church needs to dis display what that looks like. And mm -hmm. so when we come together, um, we come together as those who, uh, you know, we're individuals and we're different ages and different uh, races and different backgrounds and different educational levels and all the rest. But we come together finding our unity in those seven ones, somewhat in fulfillment of our Lord's prayer that we all be one. And so we have this wonderful privilege as a church to show the world this is what oneness looks like when it's brought under the headship of the Supreme uh, Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so that's how he begins. And then, interestingly, moves toward uh, what I call growth-oriented ministry. So we have God-centered unity, one through mm -hmm. six, and then growth-oriented ministry, seven through 16. And that was our, our passage especially chosen for this conversation. But the church is to uh, minister in all the ways that it does in a context of unity. So whatever mm -hmm. ministry is going to look like, we can't leave verses one through six behind and all go our separate directions. We've got to find a way to live out the various ministries God has given as leaders, as people. We have to find a way to live those out such that uh, we put on display the unity that is in Christ. So that's, uh, that's where our passage goes in these first 16 verses, um, God-centered unity and growth-oriented ministry. And that's where I hope we can focus a bit more of our time. Yeah. Well, I mean, unity could not be more front and center for those of us living in the United States, you know, in, no. in 2021. Um, not because we're uh, experiencing, but because the experience of the loss, I think, has created a, a deeper hunger for it. Mm -hmm. Talk about, so you said, you said growth-centered ministry. Say more about that. Well, yeah, this beginning at verse 7, 7 through 16, this ministry happens in a three-part process. It begins with the gifts given by Christ to all believers. Uh, verse 7, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift goes on and talks about Christ, and then it gives a purpose statement at the end of verse 10, that he might fill all things. 
if we just stop and ponder that a moment, every believer has a Christ-given charism, a, a ministry gift, something Christ has given us, and he enables us to offer this gift to his body, the church, to make it fuller of him. And, and so more effective in filling the universe with his glorious presence. So practically, you know, if the church isn't all that it should be, we should be asking, perhaps my ministry is what's missing. You know, mm. maybe, maybe there's something that I could be contributing to its beautifying um, process. There are so many implications just already in those first few verses, implications for humility, for acceptance, because it, it doesn't say we choose our gifts. It says Christ has given us charisms. Mm. He, he has apportioned these as he wills. And it should also give us a sense of confidence that I'm not being asked to do something in the church for which Christ hasn't equipped or enabled me. But, yeah, but just, Bernie, if I can just real yeah, quick sure. use the word charism, can you just give like the, you know, the 10 second kind of crash course, what's a charism? Sure. I mean, you're describing it as we go, but just, just to be clear for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. In the Protestant world, we always call this spiritual gifts. And the passages that, that come to mind are Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4, and then there's a short paragraph in 1 Peter chapter 4. So we have these four passages in the New Testament specifically that talk about spiritual gifts, and in our Catholic context, we usually refer to these as charisms to differentiate from the other gifts of the Spirit, like wisdom and the fear of the Lord and these things. Um, and so by charism, we mean a ministry gift, a gift that is given by Christ to each of his people so that we have something to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. I'm, I'm needed here. I, I, no one can say I have nothing to offer. No one can say, you know, I'm, I'm not able to to contribute in any way to the life of the church. I just go to get, you know, I go like like I go to the grocery store, you know, I just go to get that. That's not what St. Paul is saying. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying any, anyone who's baptized confirmed that the yeah. Lord has given a gift. Can you just give like a, an example or two just in the kind of the ordinary, you know, okay, I'm baptized. Sure. I've been confirmed. Sure. I mean, I know they manifest in all sorts of ways and variety. Yes, and, and St. Paul will list a bunch of these in 1 Corinthians, the, the passages I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. And I don't know that those lists are exhaustive, but they certainly are suggestive. Uh, some of the gifts are, are uh, teaching, serving, helping, healing, administering, you know, leading and organizing. And so I, I don't remember how many, maybe 15 or 18 or so mm -hmm. are, are listed explicitly. And I would encourage, I mean, just one of the wonderful practical outcomes of this uh, time together today, I think, is if people would go and prayerfully ask the Lord, you know, what, what have you given me that I can be offering to, to the church to make it a more beautiful bride of Christ? Perhaps even have conversations with those who know you best. 
And don't be shy about it. Ask, you know, as you, you know me, what would you say are my charisms? Those things that God has equipped me best to offer back to him as, as, as a serving role in this church. Uh, certainly ask your, your um, pastors. And, um, and I think over time, people can discern where they best fit. And I think, I think it would be just a wonderful, wonderful step forward, you know, if all of God's people really took that seriously and truly believed that Christ has indeed given me something to offer to the building up of the church. So that, that's what Paul's getting at in those first verses. But this doesn't just happen. Something is needed in order for this to, to work out. And so in the next couple of verses, he highlights leadership and lists them in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. And here's where we have to give special attention to verse 12. To equip the saints. Some Bibles read, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So let's run this back through. Growth-oriented ministry happens through the gifts given by Christ to all believers who are equipped or prepared for their ministries by the gifted leaders God has given the church. And these four, so you're saying these four particular gifts that he's calling out now apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, that those are leadership gifts that are meant to equip and call out all of the other gifts. Yes. Yeah. Not to do all of the ministry. And I think this is where we sometimes get ourselves into, into problems. When we view our clergy or those in official capacity leadership roles, we view them as doing the ministry. And, and I think uh, St. Paul would have us take another look at that and view these people as not just doing all the ministry, but helping the rest of us do the ministries of the church. I, I sometimes mm -hmm. wish we would have in our church bulletins a line that goes like this. The pastors or the, the official leaders, and then give the names, fathers so-and-so, father so-and-so. And then another line that reads, the ministers, colon, all the parishioners of St. Peter <laughs> Catholic Church, or all the parishioners of... Do you want to like list them all out so we can fill up the bulletin? Yeah, that's, that's really what he's getting at. It, it's, he's not saying that all these leaders are doing all the ministry. They're, I might be coining a rather odd word here, but they're in the equipery, not just in the ministry, but in the equipery. They are equipping the rest of us to be better, uh, better and more faithful uh, servants. So um, I, I think this passage is really, really key to helping us understand uh, how the church is supposed to live, operate, and go about its calling of filling the universe with God's glory. And as I've said before, I'm not sure any passage elsewhere does as much. So Vern, can we talk, and I want to, Father, you jump in here too. What does this look like in real life? So, I mean, I'm, I'm fishing for a story here 
because uh, sure. I think we've seen this, but what does it look like in real life? Just glimpses, you know, I know we're never able to fully live any of the ideals presented in scripture. Um, there's moments, um, you know, praise God for the saints, but what does this look like in real life when it begins to happen? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm most familiar, of course, with our own parish, St. Peter Church here in South Lincoln. I'm, I'm growing in my familiarity with the other parishes around the, the diocese and beyond, but I'm certainly most familiar here. And one of the things we do at St. Peter, uh, and I think this happens every fall, and I don't know how many years back it goes, but we receive a survey and, and it just uses the very familiar three T's, time, talent, treasure. And it asks a series of questions or has a, seri- a, a number of categories under each of those, or subpoints under each of those categories that give people an opportunity to identify what they could do in terms of their time. Uh, and many people respond to that in terms of renewed prayer commitments or increased prayer commitments or availability to serve uh, in in one way or another in the life of the church. In terms of talent, um, people have opportunity to identify where they feel their charisms lie. And in terms of treasure, um, again, renewing or perhaps increasing commitments uh, to the financial um, needs of of the church. And I have the statistics. I grabbed these the other day. In our last uh, parish survey, there were 452 commitment cards submitted. And of those 452 commitment cards, 4,494, almost 4,500 renewed or brand new prayer commitments, which addresses in part the stewardship of time. There were 1,776 ministry commitments, the stewardship of talent. In fact, 80% of the participating households committed to serving in various ministries. And of those 1,700, 441 of them were new ministry commitments. Hmm. And, and then there were 364 offertory commitments where people were making specific um, commitments to, to their stewardship of treasure. And um, my sense is, not just in our parish, but all around. I, I think when, when we're baptized and the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives through, years, through the years, we have a desire to serve. We, God, it's a God-implanted desire to be helpful, to be useful, to contribute. I mean, I realize in our culture, it's so much receiving and me-oriented, but I think in God's people, there is this desire to contribute, to serve. And so I was touched. So I serve in RCIA in our parish. I'm one of the team, but one of the teaching team and in other ways as well, um, some musical ministries and such, but, but mainly RCIA. And I arrived early one evening when I was going to teach as I typically do. And I went into our sanctuary to have some time of prayer and um no, I'm mixing up times. There was another time I arrived for RCA and I stood at the glass um, that, that looks into the sanctuary. And I noticed about, I'm going to guess, 15 to 20 people inside from children 
it seems to me the youngest one was three or four years old, all the way up to uh, my age people, in there cleaning, uh, vacuuming, dusting, uh, ordering the flowers and, and doing all sorts of things. I stood there at the window in, in tears. Th this is the body of Christ in action. And parents are helping their children learn that going to church isn't just a matter of receiving. It's also a matter of participating and, and contributing. And then people are involved in Bible studies and all sorts of, of, of uh, right to life and, and, uh, and, and all sorts of other activities in the life of the church. And we, we just had Monday evening session, I think Father Clark called it State of the Parish or something like that address, where he looked at the past, looked at the present, looked at the future. And he has a vision in mind of where he would like to go. And he didn't know this interview was coming up. I'd never mentioned to him that we were going to do this. But he has in mind a vision that's very much in keeping with Ephesians 4. And I went to him afterward and, and I said, Father, I don't even know if this is appropriate for me to do. I think it is. But would you pray with me? And I, I will certainly pray there might be a ministry in this church that I'm not yet involved in, that I should be involved in. And I just wonder if you might have thoughts about what that might look like. And I have an idea and I'll just throw it out there. And it was a really special time as we stood there together, sort of brainstorming about what that might look like. I can't imagine, Father, that happens to you all the time, right? Where parishioners are coming up saying, I feel like the Lord wants me to help. How, how do you want me to help, Father? Yeah. It actually happens a lot more than you think. That's yeah. great. Which I think is just wonderful. And it's just more evidence, I think, of the, the life of the Spirit in his people uh, in reflection of the passage we're discussing here today. But I do find it difficult, though. I mean, certainly I can call on the Holy Spirit when somebody asks. And just hopefully he'll give me an answer. But there are, there's a lot that I, I can't touch everything in, the, in two parishes here. And even if I just had one, I like I am not the, uh, I don't know, just the, the grand, not the, the, the wizard behind the, sure. <laughs> the veil there. Um, there's just a lot of things where I, I, I would prefer not to know what they're doing. Meaning like I'm just hoping that I'm equipping them some way uh, that then the Holy Spirit really moves them to live out their own charisms, their own apostolate, yes. whatever they're doing. It, when you were a pastor, uh, certainly must, people must have came to you or come to you and, uh, or maybe there's the ways in which you were equipping others mm -hmm. as a pastor. How, how did you live that out? How did sure. you equip others? Sure. This was in the Protestant world, of course. Our church leadership structure, uh, we called the, uh, the main leadership body an eldership. And uh, we had both uh, vocational, full-time paid uh, pastors, and then others who were lay people, but who met with us. And, uh, and so together we formed a leadership team. And I sort of took Jesus' model of his disciple, or Jesus' uh, ministry to his disciples as my model. And I tried to pour as much of my, my heart, my uh, available time uh, into those fellow leaders and then beyond that, into our teachers. In, in the Protestant world where I was, we had an educational program, uh, adults to children, uh, all the way down to children. 
Uh, we're gonna go the other way from children all the way up through adults. And uh, these, uh, these were led by teachers and I wanted to have our teachers be well-equipped. So I would spend as much time as I could with our teachers. Uh, and I wasn't alone in this. Uh, other of our elders would do similarly. And we would meet and we would pray, we would encourage, we, we would offer uh, suggestions on, on how to become a better teacher. We also had small groups in, in our setting, and these were home groups led by lay people. Uh, and, and I would pour heart and time and any preparation I could into these leaders to help them lead these little flocks. So they were groups of maybe eight to 12 people. They would meet weekly in, in most cases. And, and the format would be pretty simple. People come together for an hour, hour and a half uh, evening. And they, they enjoy just being together for a while, uh, talking about life and, and family and work and all the rest. And then they spend perhaps uh, 20 minutes or a half hour in, in a passage of scripture, or in some cases, reading a, a book together and chapter by chapter. But most of the time in our setting, it was in a passage of scripture. They would discuss it. It wasn't a lecture style. It was a discussion. And then they would pray together, and then they would have refreshments if they wished. The leaders of those little shepherd flocks, I felt, were, were really people that I wanted to put some of my, my time and, and, and energy into to help them become the very best flock leaders they could. You didn't do all the teaching yourself. No. You really, you poured yourself uh, invested in that smaller right. group of leaders and you were basically building new apostles. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, with the, with the hope that, that they would go and do likewise. And mm -hmm. So that, that's how we worked it out in, in the settings where I've been. Uh, I've been in, leadership, in that leadership level in four different or five different congregations, both in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, I would say that at least in our evangelical traditions, um, what I've just sketched is, is fairly representative. I think that's how most pastors see their role, not as doing all of the ministry, but uh, helping to equip others to lead. I, I find that uh, not my experience as a Catholic pastor, and I'm yeah. envious of that model that you described. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of my observations uh, in some of the questions that Jim had sent me. Uh, what are some of the pitfalls and challenges to living out this vision? Uh, I, I think that's one of them. I for whatever reason, and I don't, I don't want to make an unfair comparative statement, but we can paint with too broad a brush here. Protestantism is all over the map, as we know, uh, right. some 30, 40,000 varieties. But at least in the more faithful uh, expressions of Protestantism, there's this strong sense that, that we are all priests, um, serving priests, with responsibilities um, of faithfulness to the Lord. And, and we don't view ministry as, as being up to the, you know, the hierarchical um, priest uh, as maybe we have in, in the Catholic setting. And I think we can, the pendulum can kind of swing here to either extreme. I think 
in Protestantism, sometimes the priesthood of the believer is taken, that's what it's called, the priesthood of every believer, is taken in directions that it shouldn't go. In, in the Catholic setting, I'm afraid sometimes we look to our priests to do everything. And, you know, I, I think that's unfortunate and, and it's, it's crippling. Uh, to the church. I don't know what the solution is. My sense about the priests here in the Diocese of Lincoln is they're terribly busy. And I would, I would hate, you know, for anyone to hear me saying, you know, add more to your load. But, you know, if broadly speaking, a priest sees his role as sacramental and administrative, I'd like to see if possible, how the administrative aspects of, of a priest ministry can, can be cut back and some of that delegated to free up more time to do what 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 we're seeing here in Ephesians 4 of yeah. equipping. Yeah. Jim just gave me that lecture yesterday. Yeah. Oh, Equip the saints. How, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how did that conversation go? <laughs> oh, another podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah Vern, how do you get, how do you get started? So I, I'm thinking here, I'm thinking about like teachers and principals and parents for that matter. I do think there's a domestic church application to this. Yes. How do you get started? And I think think maybe if I can sharpen our question two ways, you you know, you are a leader because you are a parent or you're a principal or you're the youth minister, pastor, associate, whatever. How do you begin to recognize your particular leadership gift, apostle, prophet, right? Because I'm assuming your fruitfulness in equipping the saints for their work of ministry is going to take expression in your faithful discernment and living out of your particular gift of ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist. So just how do you begin to kind of know how to step into that as a, as a teacher? Um, And then we alluded to it, but like, well, what are the pitfalls? What do you need to be aware of? Uh, as you begin, I mean, we talked about the one which is like just not even getting started, trying to do it all yourself. But um, yeah, t- two questions there. How do you know as a leader where to get where to get started? It's a great question, and I'm not sure I I can respond helpfully to it. Of course, I I think everything starts with capturing God's vision or recapturing God's vision. What does God want the church to be? And and as we've been talking here today, I think Ephesians is a great place. I think Lumen Gentium and the Vatican II document is a great place. So I think we could begin by reviewing. I I think we, we are always in need, not of reinventing the church, but of rediscovering Mm -hmm. the church. So let's, let's just clarify our vision. And if this is what God wants us to be about, let's uh, let's get about it and not worry too much about doing it perfectly at the beginning. But how be if we identify as leaders, I'm speaking now perhaps to Father, but but to the rest of us in, in, in other ways, it seems to me apostles and prophets are kind of in categories that 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 are establishing foundational to the life of the church and i think apostolic ministry then is carried out through our our bishops i think prophetic ministry is carried out through the proclamation of of god's uh, word evangelists i think are those who are especially gifted in the work of evangelization and in helping others to capture 
the, the great uh, opportunities. Uh, we just had that discussion the other evening here in our parish, how to reach those Catholics who have wandered away from the church and how to reach all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other families uh, with the gospel, just have, who have had no connection at all with the church. Pastor, that word speaks to the issue, uh, to the uh, role of shepherding and teaching speaks to the role again of, of teaching, of homilies and all the rest. And maybe just identify as leaders where we best fit just with that list. But I, I think we've got to go beyond that and then ask, okay, how can I focus these ministries on equipping others? And so, um, perhaps prayerfully uh, asking the Lord for the name uh, of one or names of, of several people whom I could just begin to pray for and spend some time with. And, and, and let's say, let's say, I don't feel that I am particularly gifted in evangelism. I think my area is more teaching, but, but let's say I am gifted in just reaching out and, you know, beyond the, the walls of the, of the church I make contacts easily. I learn how to strike up conversations. It's not hard for me to invite people to mass, those sorts of things. Why, why do that alone? Why not identify two or three others that I could encourage and say, hey, let, let's begin to pray about this block in our city where there are three or four fallen away Catholic families and then 15 other families who, who, who as far as we know, have no connection. Let's, let's, Pray together, work together on a strategy. We're going to get the word out and, and, and go to door to door even and give some invitations or something. I, but, but my whole point, and, and this is what I do as a teacher, um, you know, Jim knows this, but I like to surround myself with some younger fellows. So one of them is my son and another one is a former focus missionary as, as Jim once was. His name is Joshua Burks. He's 26 years old. And he's very humble, he's a learner, and he's a very gifted teacher. I will take every opportunity I can to share my insights, my experience. I'm 70 years old. I've walked this path a lot longer. And uh, some of the things I've learned in the various formal settings where I've taught, uh, how I prepare class lectures, here's what my notes look like. Uh, I share documents uh, with these guys. If they're going to teach a course on Ephesians, which I've already taught, I'll give them my notes and see what it looks like. I want to develop more teachers. Well, you know, go right down the list of charisms. And, and instead of just assuming that it's all about, you know, me being active, why not assume it's about me being active, but also helping others mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and encouraging others to get involved as well. So those are a few points, but I, one of the challenges we're always going to face, and, and this maybe is a bit more in the Catholic world, certainly than I experienced in the Protestant world, but it's this, this notion that we just go to church to get, and, and, and you know, it's the priest's job to, to make the mass the way I like it. And if I don't like it, then I'll complain. You know, it's, it's just so American. It's just so consumeristic. And I think we need to work at changing that culture. And I think that takes teaching. It takes prayer. It, but I think we need to be bold to, to teach that. It, church isn't all about coming to get as glorious and wonderful as it is. It's also about coming 
to serve, to give. And I don't just mean by, you know, opening my checkbook. I mean by, by considering ways that I could contribute, that, that I could help relieve the load of some of the others who, who are presently just over, overworked. I think we have, we have that challenge. And, and just to capture a more biblical concept of the church than an American concept of consumerism. And I want to say one more thing too, and, and this is going to be controversial, and uh, I hope listeners can receive this. It's straight out of Ephesians 4. We didn't finish the passage. It goes on, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed back and forth and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. And here's the controversial point. Since becoming Catholic, I have heard more times than I did in 65 previous years that the end goal is to get to heaven the goal of everything is to get to heaven. Okay, I appreciate that. But what we're failing to emphasize is how we get there. It's not just, you know, that we look down the road to, to the glorious finish at the end, but how do we get there? Or how do we live all along the way? And along the way, we are to be becoming fuller and fuller of Christ. And we are to become a church that is increasingly radiant, back to the trophy case, we're to become a church that is increasingly filling up the earth with the presence and glory of God. That has implications. The, the, the goal isn't just to get to heaven. The goal is to contribute to the upbuilding of the body of Christ all along the way. And that's a culture shift, or it's, it's a paradigm shift, uh, because I, I I don't think a lot of people are thinking in that mode. And uh, so I, I hope that's uh, you know, acceptable. I could certainly elaborate on it, but I, I think that is where our passage is taking us. Not enough to, to try and get to heaven. You actually are supposed to bring somebody with you. Yeah, yeah. And you're to be involved in the work and life of the church all along the way to make it what God wants it to be. Vern, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here. And Father, you jump in this too. It seems like there is a very, very clear implication in Paul's thinking here that growth is a key indicator of health. Mm -hmm. um, and we just have to be honest even when you factor out demographics, meaning like a neighborhood that might be shrinking, um, I'm thinking particularly, you know, in rural parts of, uh, you know, the Nebraska diocese, some of the rural parts of, thank you, mechanized farming, and, but the, you know, the, the population is decreasing. But even when you factor that out, there's no way to get around the fact that 
our churches are shrinking. The attendance, the participation, they are they're shrinking. And sometimes that's hidden if you're in a suburb. And sometimes it's dramatically illustrated if you're in a rural area where, where the population is also de decreasing. But as people begin to disaffiliate, how do we receive this vision that Paul gives us as a, as a call to conversion? Um, right? I mean, it's both. I, I, it's the anecdote, but it's also a call to conversion itself because we're not, most of the time, we're not growing. And, and it, it, sometimes, you know, sometimes it looks like we are. And when you drink, dig a little bit deeper, you realize like, no, it's the real estate market or it's immigration or there's a number of things that praise God that souls are able to gather. But how do we receive this as a call to conversion? Because mm -hmm. the picture that Paul paints is not, is not our current experience for the most part. I'll leave it to the, the biblical scholar. But but I'll take I'll do my take on it first. <laughs> but he'll give the final. I'll let him a right. give him a chance to think about deferring. it and give the right answer. But 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 as I read Ephesians, I don't see him talking about the growth in numbers. I see him talking about maturity of individuals, the growth of of a faith and and the way in which we live out our faith uh, individually. So that's why I, I feel that I've often used this passage as a way to encourage people that there is a path of growth of discipleship. That there, that a that a parish might have a path for for somebody to grow in maturity, so that we're not, so that 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 our 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 Catholics aren't infants, that they're being tossed around by every strange new teaching of the world, um, but that that they're, but at least there's some growth in their their sense of being a disciple and follower of Jesus. I would hope that that would translate into greater numbers, but of, of converts. And I, I think it would, I mean, I think there's just automatically, there would be fruitfulness, but I, I really see him making a case for a clear path for discipleship that, that people are taking next steps mm -hmm. and maturing in, in what it means mm -hmm. to be a Christ follower. And I, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm new here at the, my parishes and we've got a long ways to go, but you know, uh, eventually we, we want to be able to give steps for people. Like, so whether that's alpha, whether that's a, a, a course on prayer, a course on some uh, learning salvation history uh, and learning how to lead small groups. But then that's it. Like eventually I want my kids to grow up so they can do that themselves. And uh, so that, that's, I, that would be my answer for you, Jim. Yeah. I that's stuff. really good father. I, couldn't agree more. Uh, somewhere in the notes Jim sent me, there's a quotation from a father. Is it Malon? M-A-L-L-O-N. Mm -hmm. The end game of pastoral care is to bring people to maturity. That's a quotation. The end game of pastoral care is to bring people to maturity. I would just add this though. So yes, um, yes, yes, on your emphasis on a path to discipleship. But I, I would say, uh, in Ephesians, we have multiple references to filling, to fullness, to filling up the universe. You know, right at the end of chapter one, he's put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This filling fullness uh, theme in Ephesians, I think, then does carry over into uh, what we are doing as a church to fill up the universe with the knowledge of Christ too. So it doesn't stop with personal growth uh, and maturity. It, it must come to 
impact the world in which we live. And uh, that's part of the church's calling, so evangelization. Well, and it seems like the exercise of one's personal charism, because you have, because it's been cultivated, right, by someone in leadership, a pastor, a youth minister, a teacher, a parent, coach, whatever, that it's that growth part of and an essential part of achieving that maturity. You have to begin to step into mission in the particular ways that the Lord has called and equipped you for. And yes, there's this desire in us that we expect to burst out and to show up on surveys and volunteering, but there's a there's an essential leadership role to cultivate these gifts, to help call people into mission, to, to help prepare them so that they can as they head out following the Lord on the journey, uh, heading out into the, you know, the, the vineyard with him, that's, that's, where they, that's where they find that maturity. That's where you know, their, their prayer is deepened. Their relationship takes on a new level. He, he always calls us and he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But there, there's always an element of mission in, in the invitation of discipleship. Yeah. No, I was actually just going to review something here that might be helpful if we just put it in in a complete package, if people are going to open their Bibles and and read back through our passage. I'm talking about verses uh, 7 through 16. Growth-oriented ministry happens and maturity comes about, A, through the gifts given by Christ to all believers, verses 7 through 10, who are equipped for their ministries by spiritual leaders, 11 and 12, so that together they may build up the church to maturity, 13 through 16. So that's our outline. That's the way uh, the argument unfolds here. I hope that many uh, listeners, I hope uh, priests who, who might happen onto this um, equip cast, laity, who, lay people who might uh, happen on, I, I, I hope I hope this will be the beginning of, of rethinking, perhaps, um, not that we've shared anything partic- particularly new here, but just rethinking the seriousness of this in terms of what it means to be the church, both internally and then outwardly, missionally, as you said earlier. Mm. I think this passage is really, really giving us, in a concise way, what, what that really looks like, what that's all about. Gentlemen, can we kind of close up with some real, real practical tips and takeaways? Uh, I, one of the things that I very early in our conversation, you said, I, you know, talk to a friend and ask them. This is, I think, my my words, but not yours. Like, how do you see God using me? Like, where do you see, you know, God having equipped, uh, given me a, a charism or a gift? Uh, that's a that's a that's one practical ta- takeaway as people are beginning you know to kind of seek uh, seek out um, the the mission the Lord has given them. What else? What are some kind of practical takeaways? I really want to stress. Let's just get over our fear of failure. Matur- maturation is a process. We become better at things as we do them, and let's not be crippled by you know the fear that. If I offer to my priest um, or, or other ministry leader in our parish, if I offer my 
you know, an hour a week or, or whatever it is, uh, let's not be crippled by this worry that, you know, I might not do it a, a, a good, as good a job as someone else might do and uh, whatever, and just do it. Just, just be available. You know, if you were to offer to your priest, uh, I'm convicted that I'm not serving in the way that I could and should be. And, and I, I want to grow to become a better servant of the Lord. And if there might be something even on your plate, administrative detail, sorts of things you're giving time and attention to that I could do just as well, uh, consider me available and I will be faithful. And, and if you make a statement like that, you know, you might want to be careful. It might uh, cause a heart attack, but, uh, you know, but, but do it and, and see what, what doors God opens up. I tell you, it's just such a joy to, to know that Christ has given you something to offer to the building up of others and to see that actually happen and, and to see your, yourself being effective. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it is such a joy. So I, I would say, uh, you know, don't be crippled by a fear of failure. Start somewhere, and uh, and then on the part of priests, I, I mean, who am I to lecture priests? But I would say, if, if you are a priest and are listening to this, and you have tendencies toward macro uh, managing or micromanaging rather, and and just feel that your hand has to be involved in everything, I, I think it's a legitimate expectation that every ministry in the church in keeping with the unity theme earlier, be done in a way that's honorable and orderly. And Paul speaks to that elsewhere in Corinthians. But it doesn't mean that, um, that, that only the priest should be doing everything or managing everything. And if there are ways for a priest to, to free up some time by empowering or, uh, or enabling um, some laity to take some of the practical day-to-day -day load off their plate that that would be a wonderful a wonderful practical outcome of this too thank you Vern. uh don't worry about lecturing priests uh jim does it all the time yeah i'm sure he does <laughs> <laughs> all right oh gosh look at the time guys we uh <laughs> no I, I i love i love what you're saying and and uh, certainly i i feel that burden of a lot of people asking me to do things and, and, and expectations of myself that I need to do this or that. And don't feel like I have the, I have really good staff, but I don't know if I have, they have all the right gifts for what we need to do here in the future. Um, so I find myself taking a lot more on than I probably should be. Um, but as you were speaking, especially about like really investing in the people who are the ones who are teaching right to, to Timothy two, two, like yep. investing in the, in, in, finding those teachers who can teach, who can teach. And, uh, and just really feeling a call like, well, I can spend a little bit more time with my, my school principals. And I can really ask them like, you know, how can I spend more time with our teachers? How can I spend more time with our RE teachers? How could I spend more time with, uh, with my parish council where we could really do not just create policy, but really invest in their, their own growth as, as mature Christians and really set that expectation. If you're going to be on this board, then, we're not just here to set policy. We're, we're also here to, to grow uh, together in that vision that, that Jesus offers us 
or St. Paul offers us in Ephesians. Yeah. So I really felt convicted as you were speaking uh, today. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. It's such a privilege to be with you all. Um, mm. I, I hope this is uh, approximately what you had in mind. Yeah. Oh, um, this is, this is great. Vern, we, we mentioned, you know, at the start uh, that the Emmaus Institute, uh, the work you're doing, classes, uh, both online and in person. If people want to learn more about the Emmaus Institute, if they'd like to, they'd sure. like a little bit more, <laughs> they want to, you know, they want to have a chance to, to study uh, the, the word of God at a deeper level, where can they go to find out more information? Our, our website is the best place, www.emmaus, E-M-M-A-U-S, emmausinstitute.net. And you'll find there our course offerings, our quarterly seminars, which are on Saturday mornings. Most of our regular classes are in the evenings. We're, we're moving to some daytime. I, I'm doing a, a Friday morning class right now with some of the religious sisters here in town. So, but uh, yes, our classes are in person and online and uh, we're still in our infancy. We're just a year and a half old. Uh, part of my journey into the church was to surrender a lifetime of public teaching and public ministry. And uh, I was surprised when Bishop Conley contacted me just three months after we were received. And he asked if I would begin praying about starting an institute that, uh, that's dedicated to scripture study in the Diocese of Lincoln. And so that's how we had our beginning. We opened our doors in 2019 and uh, and we're having a wonderful, wonderful time. Fantastic. Thank you, Vern. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. And uh, yeah, confident this, this, uh, this conversation is going to be a, a blessing. So if you have enjoyed this, if you want to get the show notes, uh, some of the links we mentioned, uh, you can uh, subscribe to the blog, equip.archomaha.org. Uh, you'll get notified every time we drop a new episode. You can get the show notes here. And if you want to subscribe directly to the EquipCast, you can find us on all the major platforms. EquipCast, uh, all one word, uh, Apple, Google, Stitcher. Go find us there and subscribe and uh, share it with a friend. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Mm-hmm.